Welcome to Recover Strong, a podcast that will transform your recovery from an eating disorder by helping you go from theory to practice to mastery. This is your special time to learn new skills, tools, and get the inspiration you need to recover strong. Let's get started. I'm your host, Jessica Flint. I'm the founder and CEO of Recovery Warriors, a wisdom sharing platform for all people impacted by an eating disorder. Recovery Warriors provides resources and support to heal your relationship to food, body, mind, and soul. I believe recovery is not only possible, but it is worth it. That is why Recover Strong exists, to help you see and connect to the potential that lies within you to find freedom from an eating disorder. Today, we have a conversation with a guest I am so honored to introduce, Evelyn Triboli. She's a registered dietitian with decades of experience, and she co-authored the book, Intuitive Eating, a revolutionary program that works. Now, this book came out in 1995, and it is considered one of the fundamental books for those struggling with dieting, eating disorders, and body image issues. Evelyn Triboli, along with her co-author Elise Resch, are true pioneers in getting the word out about intuitive eating, which has become a staple in the recovery journey of so many. They've since released the Intuitive Eating Workbook, and Evelyn has written and released a book on her own called Intuitive Eating for Every Day. And before we get into her interview, I want to invite you to take our listener survey and enter our raffle for a free recovery strategy session with me. I pick two lucky winners at every new moon, The link to the survey is in the episode notes below. Your feedback helps us curate content on the show specifically for you, which is what we've done with this episode. A listener named Camille shared that she values our show because we provide content that is, quote, true and safe to trust. It is so helpful to listen to other people's experiences combined with information supplied by eating disorder professionals. So I just want to say thank you, Camille, for letting us know that trustworthy content is something you value in our podcast. We put this episode together with you in mind because our guest, Evelyn Tribbley, is one of the most credible and trustworthy professionals in the eating disorder community. So thank you, Camille, for taking the time to take our survey. And if you, dear listener, have any topics you'd like us to cover, we invite you to let us know through the listener survey. Once again, the link is in the episode notes below. Alrighty, Warrior, let's get into this conversation with Evelyn Triboli. Welcome, Evelyn. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Your book, Intuitive Eating, was a godsend for me and my recovery. I find it so cool that you literally pioneered the term intuitive eating and the movement around it. So thank you for taking the time to talk with me and all the warriors about your work. Oh, thank you so much. And I will tell you, you know, is you're right. When we, Elise and I came up with this concept, the term intuitive eating didn't even exist. And It's probably accurate to say in 1995 when we wrote the book, it was really research-inspired and also inspired by all our work with our patients. But fast forward to today, there's been over 80 studies on our work on this model showing benefits, which I just find so exciting. So exciting. So exciting. I mean, the idea around it and wrap their head around this idea of, wait, I can eat whatever I want. Whenever yeah, I'm- doesn't that sound crazy? <laughs> <laughs> it's revolutionary, but that's just because it's against everything we've been learning in the diet industry. And we really kind of drilled that in as dieting is, is doesn't work. But 
I want to kind of explore a few of the other principles that you outlined that we haven't really gotten into. And yeah. one is this idea of our hunger. You know, why are we so out of touch with our hunger when we're, you know, years of dieting? Well, it's several factors. And first, let me just begin with this, is we all have the ability. It's in us. We have the innate ability to listen to our body. So intuitive eating is about empowering you. you. Only you can be the expert of your body. But what ends up happening is when you start following diet plans or, or meal plans, no matter what the great intentions are, you're going to external sources to tell you how much to eat. And after a while, you, your little hunger's knocking on the door. It's like, oh, I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry. And then, it's, and then you're not answering. It just says, ah, I give up. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it's, I often act out the cells for my patients because I find that we start talking about bodies. We have this idea and there's so much pain and shame that happens and, and an idea of what a body should look like. But when I finally start talking about little cells, your little cells in the body, your little liver cells, your little bone cells, no one's ever fought me back on that. And so they, we start first with compassion about all the little cells in your body that have worked their little patooties off to help you function in this world. And you've been starving it and it's confusing. And if you want your body to be nice to you and to respond, you need to be nice to it too. You need to be consistent. You need to feed it. And that might sound really basic, but you are the expert. You are the expert of your body. And, and that's, that's the big message that not only that dieting's don't, that dieting doesn't work, it actually harms. It, it causes bigger problems. That's, oh, kills yeah. me. I love the idea of the cell too, because it's so small. You're not going to be like, you're such an ugly cell, you know? <laughs> Yeah, but really it all our body is an amazing piece of work and just this it's truly amazing miraculous. Yeah Yeah, so what happens is there's all this confusion and so one of the ways I like to work with hunger is this it's actually a direct experience in your body you know some people hear the hear the, the experience of hunger maybe through an empty stomach or a rumbling stomach but some people don't experience it that that way they might experience it in a mood shift or a little headache or a little difficulty in focusing and concentrating those are direct things that we can actually figure stuff out but when i find when there's confusion like i don't know what to eat i don't know if i should eat now that confusion's coming from the mind in terms of maybe rules or beliefs that you have around eating. And so one of my big things is like, if you're feeling confused, let's just stop for a moment and connect in. What is the experience of your body right now? Not, not what your mind is saying, not what the rules are of past eyes, but what is your body experiencing right now? And only you can answer that question. I can't answer that for you. I can facilitate the process, but only you know. That's a great, because sometimes people may have a snack, and then an hour later, they're like, I'm hungry again, but I can't be hungry, like, I just had a snack. That's a great example. In fact, where I hear it classically, is like, I just ate breakfast an hour ago, I can't be hungry. And so an analogy I will use, because it's still, what we're talking about is a, is a process that's called introceptive awareness, and that's our body, that's our ability to perceive physical sensations that arise from within our body, like hunger, you know, or like having a full bladder. And so relatedly, I'll say to my patient, if they, if they say this to me, they're confused about eating. I just ate breakfast an hour ago. How can I be hungry? I said, well, I will say things like, well, maybe you just went to the bathroom and emptied your bladder. <laughs> and it's an hour later and you need to be again. Do you question that? <laughs> and they'll start laughing. That's like silly. It's like, no, I, I don't question that. And I said, well, do you feel guilty about it? No. <laughs> it might be inconvenient. It might be annoying. Those are all fair assessments, you know, but your direct experience is your direct experience. So we need to start paying attention to it. And as we start paying attention to it and then honoring our hunger in a timely manner, it becomes much more predictable. And it's a very nice rhythm and flow. It's powerful. When people first get started with intuitive eating, do you recommend that they actually 
like label their hunger and write it down because they're so used to probably counting calories and looking at labels of food. Is this just another way of labeling their their meal behaviors or? Oh, what a great question. It's a tricky question in a way, because what we have to be careful of is that we don't take the diet mentality and apply it to intuitive eating. So I want to say a little something about that. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with labeling hunger, but where the problem can happen is if a chronic dieter is used to saying, oh, I blew it. You know, I ate ate the no-no foods or something. I've seen people with that kind of history say, oh my gosh, I ate and I wasn't hungry and I blew it. And my response to that is, no, you didn't. You just had a, an experience, and exp- this is a journey. You don't pass or fail intuitive eating. We learn from it. So let's say you ate and you weren't hungry. Well, let's see what ends up happening. Maybe it turns out your next meal that you typically have, you're not so hungry. Do you know what I mean? It's all mm-hmm. discovery. So, so there's many, many tools that we can use to help identify hunger. So one of the things I do is very, very basic, is I might even ask them to, to um Describe the quality of the hunger with one of three three ways. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? How would you describe this? And the reason I like to start, there's some people, including us, will start with rate, a rating system, like a scale of zero to 10. But I find when people are disconnected, that seems like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, I don't know. For me, it's a little weird. It's like, is it six, five? It makes you like think a little bit too much. Yeah, and it's the same kind of system, though, that if you were admitted to an emergency room in a hospital, they'd ask you, how much pain are you in on a scale of one to 10? So it's a common, it, it has its worth, it really does. But I find if we start first, is this pleasant hunger, uh, is this hunger pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, it now kind of gives you a sense. And so pleasant hunger, I've had people say, what do you mean? You know, hunger is the enemy. And I'm like, no, hunger is actually our friend, our body. It's, it's our way of letting us know we need to fuel our body. And I've had people who try to trick hunger. They try to avoid hunger and then it gets bigger and then they get so hungry, they're ravenous. And at that point it's like, I don't care. I'm going to kill you. if I don't get this meal. And that's primal hunger, you know? So by tending to our hunger, we actually live more quality of life because we're not distracted by eating and when can I eat or trying to suppress it. So qualitative hunger in terms of pleasant hunger is a hunger in which you're looking, kind of looking forward to eating. You actually start thinking about food and that's normal. I've had patients and clients say, I'm surprised. I thought there was something wrong with me that I'm thinking about food. It's like, no, that's how our body knows. Your brain says, hello, time to start thinking about something to eat. You know, a sandwich sounds pretty, pretty nice. So that's kind of pleasant. When you're getting into unpleasant hunger, there's an intensity to it. It's like, I have to eat right now. You know, the term hangry, I love that urban term because it describes it quite nicely. That's unpleasant. And generally with intuitive eating, what we recommend is to begin eating when you feel pleasant hunger. But in the beginning, it's hard to identify, and that's okay. You don't have to nail this. You're just trying to get to to understand it and feel it. And with time, it will all come back to you. That's the beautiful thing about it. It takes this idea of black and white, which we were so used to with diet culture and dieting, and it does really flexible. There are principles, you know, you have them laid out, but it's... You know, there's a lot more forgiveness and compassion with the process. Absolutely. It's a very flexible thing. And sometimes I will jokingly say with my patients, how would you, how would you talk to your puppy if you're, if you're, you know, (laughs) training it how to go walking on a leash or something or whatever that you're doing with the puppy, would you yell at it? No, because it doesn't know these things. So it's a little, a little puppy love to yourself. You know, that's another way of looking at compassion and kindness. Yeah. And another thing I really like that you talk about with, with the mind, you said it's all in our mind. A lot of times if we're having these rules associated with, am I hungry? Am I not? Like I shouldn't be eating now and all that. And you talk about these different food voices we have. 
Yeah. And, you know, can you let everybody kind of into what these different voices are? Because I find this is really helpful to understand these different kind of thoughts that come yeah. from our head. And yeah, Elise and I came up with this system of, of voices just to help people identify types of thinking. Just, just another way to access the mind. And so probably the, the voices I use a lot in, in, in describing things are like the food police. The food police is the judge and the jury. It's the rigid rules about what you can and can't do. You're going to be arrested if you eat that, that, that kind of aspect. And so sometimes when, when someone's telling me a thought they have around eating, I might ask, is that coming from the food police? And they go, oh, yeah. And I'll say, well, if it's coming from the food police, is that usually something that serves you or is it something that confuses you or, or hurts you? I go, oh, it usually kind of hurts me. You know, yeah. so I give you some clues. The other voice we use a lot is the food anthropologist, you know, and one of the famous anthropologists, Margaret Mead, was actually used during World War II on the Food Nutrition Board when they created that for the very first time, trying to figure out what Americans need to eat to be, to be healthy. They had the wisdom to include an anthropologist on the team. We can still use that idea. And the anthropologist is like just taking the facts. What are the facts, you know? It's basically the curious observer. You're not judging anything. You're just picking up the facts. Well, when was the last time you ate? What, what did you eat? And, and not making it one way or the other. And one way I, 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 I illustrate the opposite of this in terms of neutrality is, you know, if, if we were to take a, a golfing event and you watch a golfer, an announcer on a, on a television show with golf, and oh, lovely, they made the putt, king of the world. Just a matter of fact, you know. But if we're now to take a World Cup soccer announcer and have them announce that golfing tournament, oh my gosh, they made the putt, they're winner. And so here we're taking the same event but notice how, yeah, I love this analogy. This is so awesome. But it amplifies it, right? And it's making it, making it, some, it's the same event, but how you, yeah, exactly. Or in the diary's voice would be, I blew it. Do you know what I mean? It's the same yeah. thing. So if we can harness that neutral food anthropologist or the golfer's voice, that helps us to look at things a little more neutrally. Yeah, that is amazing. I just have such a strong visual of these two side by side, you know, this so different in your response and how you physiologically respond to this. And then exactly, exactly. Yeah. So all these things just to help with awareness, because it's only through awareness that meaningful change Will, will take place. And when someone's been dieting a lot, they don't have inner awareness. They have awareness of the rules and what someone else says. And we're saying, mm -mm, what is your body saying? Or what are the thoughts that are happening right now that might be interfering from listening to the message of your body? So ultimately, this is cultivating trust. 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 And another big word that I see related to intuitive eating is permission. Oh, yeah. What do you say about that? I mean, this is just like the biggest, I would say, principle of all the principles, just giving yourself permission. Well, it's, it's an overarching theme is, is permission that you're the adult here. You're the one who knows your thoughts. You're the one who knows your feelings. You know your experiences. You know what foods satisfy and, and what don't. So the theme of permission is big. And the biggest one is with making peace with food, having unconditional permission to eat with attunement. And I will tell you, that scares a lot of people. They're like, oh, you know, if I, if I start eating a candy bar, you don't understand. I won't stop. Or once I have a donut, man, I'm eating the whole dozen. And what, what that usually, when we start breaking this down is looking at what happens with chronic dieting. With chronic dieting, there's all the rules of what you can and can't eat. 
So it keeps food really, really exciting. So if you think you can never have a donut again and you finally have opportunity, in that moment, you don't care about hunger, fullness, or satisfaction. It's like, you're mine, and let's get it now while I can. Now, ultimately, it doesn't feel good when you finish, but that's deprivation kind of thinking, and it happens all the time with dieting. And so there's a phenomenon that happens with permission to eat. Is now when you know you have permission, it's like, well, if I eat this donut now, am I going to enjoy it? Will it be satisfying? And do I really want it? And it's the paradox of permission. It, it's, I, it's still, I love this. I love this. Is that you really have the permission to experience. And what ends up happening is sometimes people say, oh, I don't want it right now. Because you can have it whenever you want to. Why would you have it now when you're busy rushing off to a meeting and you're not going to enjoy it? Or you might end up discovering that if you have donuts as your breakfast because you have full permission, it's like, you know, I don't feel so good. I don't, I don't think I would choose to feel that. I don't think I want donuts as my whole breakfast. You know what I mean? So the phenomenon that's been studied over and over and over again, it's called habituation. And it has to do with novelty. When something's new, it's exciting. When you have a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new significant other, oh my gosh, it's so exciting. But after a while, I've seen the same person day after day. It's like, hello. You know what I mean? It's not as, as big of a deal. Or if you have a new car, it's exciting. But a year later after having the car, it's just your ride. Or even with food leftovers you know leftovers if you're having the same even if it's a favorite food and you have it day four or day five day six it's not so exciting but someone who's been chronically dieting or chronically just has rules about eating you don't say they're a dieter that keeps food really really exciting and it keeps food terrifying and so sometimes what happens is they finally let themselves have a food and then they're terrified and they think oh i'm never gonna let myself eat this way again i need rules and it becomes a big old mess in order for this to happen, there's some things that need to be in place. It's important that a person's body has been nourished consistently. If you've been eating really haphazardly, let's just say you had a crazy week. That happens to all of us. Um, you can have that primal hunger. And if during that primal hunger you decide, I'm going to have permission to eat whatever I want to, if you haven't eaten, let's say, I don't know, let's say your last meal was at noon and you got pulled into a meeting and then you had a meeting after work, and it's eight o'clock and you're having dinner and you decide I'm gonna have permission with ice cream, well, you'll probably end up eating a meal's worth of dinner and that won't feel so good, you know? So having consistency with nourishing the body is really important. So generally what I recommend when someone's playing with this for the first time is let's make sure that you've been nourishing your body. And generally I recommend having trying out these new foods, like maybe an hour or two hours afterwards. We're not dealing with full-on hunger. It's more about the taste and it's more about the experience of eating. So kind of bringing trigger foods in when you're not hungry. So would you say at the unpleasant hunger stage or the pleasant hunger stage or not even then just like a little bit? Well, you know what? There's, a, there's so many ways of working with it. So I want to be really clear about this. There's no one absolute way. So one way could be is you have it with a meal. That's actually a nice way to do it because then all foods have equal attention. You might be kind of excited about eating a new food, but there's still all these other foods there. But commonly I'll do something more like after a meal. So there's not this big raging hunger that's driving the eating. It's more about having the taste of it. So the volume isn't going to be there. But if you have raging hunger and a new food and excitement, then that can be scary feeling. Oh, one of the things I was going to say, what, what I have people do, because this can be a really scary step to a, someone who's been chronically dieting, is think about maybe in your past, was there ever a time when you didn't have rules around eating? And what was your eating like then? Did you ever used to give or take a candy bar or dessert, for example? And when you have that in your history, that's like, oh yeah, I used to be able to do that. I'm like, well, when did it start getting kind of wonky, kind of out of control feeling. It's like, oh yeah, after I started dieting. And that's an interesting thing. When you look at dieting studies, the risk of binge eating increases astronomically. 
And I didn't realize this until well after my journey through getting a clinically diagnosable eating disorder and beyond, like that dieting, just the evidence shows that it, it doesn't work, but that it actually leads to binge eating, like you're saying. So it's just like... Isn't that, I, wish, I wish every person knew this, that warning, if you start a diet and you, if you start dieting, not only will it not work, it's going to mess you up, you know? Yeah. It can increase your risk of binge eating. It can re- In fact, binging is now considered a... a, a, a an eating disorder, mm-hmm. but it can increase the risk for other eating disorders like bulimia and anorexia as well. And there's even studies, a study on 17,000 kids, kids who dieted versus those that didn't. And the kids that dieting had a much higher risk of binge eating. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's, it, and we think about it from a survival mechanism, it makes sense. As far as your cells are concerned, you're trying to kill them, you know, and they're going to do everything they can to make you eat. It's almost like when you stop breathing, if you stop breathing for a long period of time and you finally get to breathe and come up for air, it's not a polite inhale. It's a, uh, a big old gasp. And it's like you're gasping for food. Your little salamander, they are gasping for food. They yeah. want it bad, yeah. Yeah. And I find, too, that with the, the binge eating that, you know, shame is always associated with it because that wasn't supposed to happen. That wasn't part of the plan. So what are ways that when someone's working with intuitive eating, monitoring, they're kind of noticing the food police and the anthropologist is there, but when they start to get that low level shame or just the shame around the food, what are ways that you've helped clients kind of work through that, that emotion? There's, there's many ways. I mean, we can look at guilt, make it shame, shame's even, even deeper, but I I start with guilt in the beginning because people can identify it a little easier. At least that's been my, my experience. And so one of the things I like to do is we look at guilt that's a moral-based emotion. It's emotion based on violating some moral code. And so then I start asking, the moment that guilt comes up, what, what moral code did you break? What belief system is still alive in you that we need to take a look at and ask, is this really true? Is it really true that if you eat a donut, that what's going to happen? You know, unless you stole that donut or stole the money to get the donut or, or killed the donut maker, there's no moral code <laughs> that's been broken. So now we move on to shame and shame, same, same kind of thing. It's like, wait a minute, what, what happened here? Who, who put the shame in, in, in the eating? This is coming from our, our culture. What's the, you know, you had a donut or, or so what you had a binge. Okay. And so one of the ways that I look at this is what can we learn from this? It's a hard thing to ask somebody to do because we're asking them to go back and revisit something that wasn't pleasant for them. Obviously, it's very painful usually. But what was the trigger? You know, were, were, you, were you too hungry? Were you too emotionally vulnerable? You know, were you too sleepy? What was going on with you when this was going on? And what were the conditions that were happening in this? And so what was happening beforehand? And then what was happening during the actual binge? Were you able to stay connected to the here and now experience? For most people, the answer is no. The mind usually leaves the body. They're escaping something when a binge is happening quite commonly. One of the things I'll ask them to do for for future stuff is what can you do to stay connected? Can you stay connected with the taste of the food? And sometimes I'll have clients say, oh, yeah, I know the cookies tasted fantastic. And I'll say, I believe you when you say that, but I'm curious when you went for the fifth cookie and and the eighth cookie, were you still tasting? the taste is the same as the one, the first one. And they'll say, you know, I really don't know, but probably there's a chance you disconnected. And the more you can stay connected to the here and now, the more you have opportunity, the more you have awareness. 
The other thing I have them do is stay connected to emerging fullness. Generally, when you're talking about a binge, there's going to be emerging sensations of, of fullness for most people, not everybody. They might be so disconnected from themselves, they might feel so numb they don't. But when we look at that, and did you feel emerging fullness? Or was it a sudden, intrusive, oh, I feel awful. I feel sick. I feel, mm. if it's sudden, that usually means the mind has left the body. Again, it's, it's escape. And so one way I'm looking, I look at this is you're coping with the best way that you knew how in that moment. You know, people don't choose to do this. They're choosing to find a way to help and self-soothe. We just need to find another way that's not going to hurt you and not feel so, so bad. So then we put this all together, the triggers leading into the binge, the actual, what was going on during it, what can you learn from this situation? And what would you do differently? And so what I find is it helps let go. And then let's look at this also with a compassionate frame. And compassion is so important that when actually when we wrote the Intuitive Eating Workbook, it's in, the, it's in our introduction, lessons on compassion. And I don't know if your audience is familiar with Kristen Neff, a very well-regarded researcher. She put self-compassion on the map that, number one, not only does it exist, number two, we can cultivate it, and number three, the most important part, it makes a difference. And so we adapted with her permission some of her exercises to help with compassion with eating because research has also shown having compassion for yourself helps to let go of the guilt. And I have patients who struggle with this because sometimes they'll describe self-loathing or hate. I hate myself with this, Evan. How can you ask me to do this? So sometimes what I will do in these times is um, I'll say, you know, I'd like to do a little exercise if you're willing. So I bring out the puppy idea again, and I'll, I'll bring out a, a vivid image of uh, a puppy whose name is Shame. And I'll describe a puppy. If I already had a sense of this person, I might say it's a bulldog or it's a fluffy little sheepdog or whatever it happens to be, or they can name the puppy. I said, and this puppy just now pooped and it's feeling shame because it, it knew it, it broke, broke the rule and it's now sitting in a corner. What are you going to do as you see that puppy? And do you know every patient I've done this with, they've either verbalized, oh my gosh, I, I'm going to tell them it's okay, <laughs> you know, you do the best you can. Or I had one person say, I have no words, but I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to hold it. And I said, that's what, that's what you do with shame. The more you push it away, anything you repress goes, goes bigger and this helps to release it. It's funny, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm telling you this. So it's one of the ways I like to work with emotions is as if they were puppies. Because what happens is the more we try to cut off from our emotions, the more we try to deny our emotions, the bigger they become. And we don't have ways of coping self-soothing. And that as human beings, we experience a range of emotions. And what we need is we need to let them in. And we need to notice what's there. And they inform us of maybe what our, what our needs might be. So what am I feeling? What do I need? What am I feeling? What do I need? And it takes a while to figure that out. But it's really workable. It's one of my favorite words. It's a workable situation. But to work this out, we need to have this awareness. And it's hard when you have shame going on. And the last thing you want to look at is, is, is a recent bench, you know. But I think to recognize it's a natural consequence of dieting. Most people don't know that. And there's, there's sometimes to describe a sense of relief. Oh, I thought there was something ex, extra wrong with me. Although they, they use other language that I won't repeat, but you know, that there was something wrong. It's, no, I said there's a biological drive and there's a psychological drive that, that, that together they uh, come together. And it's a very, very powerful thing. It's why it's the, you know, of all the eating disorders, it's the highest incidence. Dieting is the gateway to binge eating. Now, why would you say when somebody who is stopping dieting, let's say they're, they're going to make an effort to do intuitive eating, they'll still find themselves binging? 
there's all kinds of reasons. So, you know, first of all, it's, it's great to have an intellectual understanding of intuitive eating. That's fantastic. You know, it's like, oh yeah, diets don't work. They hurt you. They suck. I'm on to, you know, I'm empowered. That's fantastic. But that's only the intellectual level. We have to get to the practice level. And so if someone has a history of binging to cope with food, uh, to cope with emotions, they might have the intellectual understanding, but they haven't quite implemented the tools yet to figure out what it is that they need. Or maybe they went too long without eating. One of my favorite stories, I had a patient who had a history of binge eating that I worked with. And after a year together, she no longer binged. She no longer was binge eating. It's fantastic. So anyways, fast forward, she goes home for the holidays and she comes back and describes to me, she goes, Evelyn, I found myself getting bingey. And she goes, but then I recognized, oh my gosh, I haven't eaten in six hours. I was eating according to my family schedule, her mom and dad. And I rec- I remembered this was a biological thing. When she recognized, oh, I just need to eat, it stopped the panic that used to happen in the past. And just was, oh, I'm just really too hungry right now. I'm ravenously hungry. So my answer to your, to your question, what happens if patients binge eat? I would say it's, a, it's part of the learning curve. You know, having knowledge and understanding doesn't change outcome until you start practicing. It's no different than a, a musical instrument. It's no different than meditation. We read all the benefits of meditation. They're fantastic. It sounds pretty straightforward. But unless you sit and you practice, you're not going to reap the benefit of that. So that's part of doing the work of it you know and that's why we actually came up with the workbook is because the the book itself is i think pretty good but people needed tools in terms of how do we harness this how do we how do we access hunger how do we access fullness and all these other kinds of things that have great research behind it but how do i actually do it and that's how we came up with the workbook so that's an important part like to be able to really do the work because you're right you cerebrally yeah you understand it but the shame that comes up if you have a binge. I like how you talked about guilt as more of a moral code. But yeah. the shame seems to be almost like deeper into like, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. Like an inherent part yeah. of who you are. Yeah. And so that's something that, that's important that we work through. And there's also something about sharing your experience with somebody else that helps when you shed the light on that. It helps loosen up that shame. Well, what are some things that have you, f- you found over the years with people? Like, I know we all have different needs, but are there certain examples? Because sometimes I think we're kind of taught not to have needs as women. Like, yeah. Like, you know, it's a very general statement, but like. Well, I tell you, we feel it so strongly. We added a huge section of that in our workbook. In fact, when Elise and I were talking, we came to the conclusion that if we were rewriting intuitive eating fresh today from square one, we probably would have had an 11th principle. It would have been self-care and maybe 12 actually with, with compassion, but self-care has to, it revolves around your needs. First, there's just your basic needs, everyday stuff. Like you need, you know, sleep, you need space and those kinds of things. And so part of it's acknowledging that not only do I have needs, but it's actually okay to get them met. met. And self-care does not mean selfish. And that, that's a big misunderstanding. So I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you some really basic stuff. It's, it's not earth shattering, but it's surprising how simple this is and what a difference it can make. And that is doing simple things like I give myself permission to take a break. I give myself permission to take a nap. I give myself permission to stop studying tonight and call it a day. And what I see happen over and over and over again in these very seemingly mundane examples, like I'm working with college students who are studying for a midterm or a final or big project, and they end up binging. And, I, and I'll say something, what do you think your, your need was at the time? Oh, I needed a break. Oh, I needed to sleep. And I, I would suggest, well, why would you consider giving yourself a half hour break or calling it a night? And their answer to me, like 
every time. I can't. I have to get this done. And then I'll gently show them, but do you see the moment that you had the binge fantasy? Because in the mind at first, it's a fantasy. It's like, oh, that sounds so exciting. From the moment that you construct it in the mind, and then you execute it, whether you dial in that pizza, whether you get this ingredients to make those cookies or whatever it happens to be, then the actual act of eating it, and then the aftermath of feeling so lousy physically and emotionally, how much time did that take? And I actually added up. We do the math together. Uh, that was three hours. That was four hours. And I'll say, you know, so in that context, you gave yourself a break. Do you see that? That's how you were getting your needs met, but you weren't willing to do it. So your, your creative mind found another way where you just had this uncontrollable craving and had to manifest in eating it all up. Do you know? I love that. I think back to college and that was so much of my college experience was having my mind create these breaks for me. Well, and that's what I, that's what I have people do. Let's take yeah. a look at what, what the pattern of binging is showing us and see, we have to do this with a non-judgmental mind. That's where I come in or it's, sometimes it's trading anxieties, you know? On the one hand, like sometimes some people just need a break. Their need is, I need a break from the stress in my life. I need a break from knowing if I'm going to have my new job or not, if I'm going to get laid off, or if I'm going to get my career and my dreams after grad school. And the truth is, no one has a crystal ball. I can't tell you what that is. And so maybe what it is is you need, to get, need yourself permission to have a, a healthy distraction because food is a distraction when it's a binge. And it might be going to the movies, going out with friends or doing something like that. And then someone said, I don't have time. And then we, we lay out the time model again. Look at how much time is spent on, on the binging. And it's like training anxieties. Like binging is very anxiety provoking, absolutely. But I'll say if you compare the anxiety about this job decision or career choice, which feels more daunting? Oh, the job. And so when we look at this, it's like, do you see how this is also, it's filling up space like that. And even though binging is stressful, it's very predictable. You know how it ends and you're in charge of that. So we look at all the different ways it's, it's, it's meeting needs. But my point in all these stories is don't overlook the basic ones. Like I need a break. I need to cancel plans with going out with my friends. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried I will disappoint them. But you've been going back to back and putting in an 80-hour work week. That might be the kindest thing that you can do. And there's even studies that are showing now that 55 hours is like the max productivity for somebody in a week or like the, mm. it, peaks, it drops off substantially after 55 hours. Yeah. So like to try to even put yourself through an 80 hour work week, multiple weeks in a row is, is really asking for burnout. Yeah. Yeah. And so what kind of life do you want to live? You know, so we're looking at short term needs, long term needs, all those kinds of things. And then there's, there's spiritual needs, there's purpose in life kinds of stuff. And then, but I look at the ordinary mundane stuff. That's usually where we need to start. Are you getting consistent sleep? How much time do you have spending with uh, friends? How much downtime do you have just for yourself to, to renew all these kinds of things? And when your needs are not being met, then food becomes more rewarding. So if because your life has been so chaotic and stressful that you haven't had time to go out with friends and go look at a sunset and go pet puppies and those kinds of things, well, guess what? You get dopamine from all those things. But if you don't have time for that, well, then the food becomes more rewarding. That becomes more of a dopamine response. You know, so when life is out of balance, it's easier for food to be out of balance. We need to look at all these things and then appreciate. It's not a bad day. They go, oh, this is so complex. I go, precisely. If it was that straightforward, it's just do it. You know what I mean? Uh, it wouldn't be an issue. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be here. It's complex. Yeah, exactly. I love these analogies. They really help. Even though it's complex, they simplify it. You know, I mean, because yeah. like, I mean, food does release a lot of dopamine and just the, the binge itself is like, 
this moment where you finally get your hands on it and you know what we have to respect it and and people are surprised sometimes when i say that and i say we have to look at how it's helped save you where you're at in your life that you're doing the best that you can because when we can give the respect to it we can also then figure out what was it helping me do what were the benefits I was getting from binging? And people think, again, I'm crazy when I ask that. I said, you know, this is causing you so much pain, this binging behavior, and yet you're continuing to engage in it. And it's not because you want more pain. I believe it's because you're getting some other benefit that you're not recognizing. And we, when we can respect the binging behavior and look at some of these benefits, then we can find other ways of coping that don't feel so so yucky. What about the idea of the like people who binge in order to demonstrate to themselves that they are a failure, that they are like the yeah. sabotager, like the one who's really going to try to, to prove a point that they suck and <laughs> they can't <laughs> do anything right. And the binge is kind of symbolic of that. Or do you think that is more about the needs not getting met or? In terms of self-defeating behavior, self-sabotaging behavior, I see it occasionally, but not quite as much. What I usually see is this, this thought process that leads to that. Oh, well, I blew it. Who cares? you know, up, whatever. And that's not necessarily to prove that they're a failure at something, but it has to do with the all or none kind of thinking. But let's talk about what you just mentioned, which is also actually the other, other side of the coin of what I'd call rebellious eating. And that's when someone says, you shouldn't eat this. And you're like, who says I can't? And then I'll show you. And then you, you know, eat a massive amount of, I don't know, fries or cookies or something like that. And ultimately what ends up happening is it hurts you. So I, I like to follow the energy. What kind of energy is being manifested? So with rebelliousness, there's, there's anger. You know, you can't tell me what to do. So we just need to find a healthier way of, of channeling this. And then the self-defeating behavior, then ultimately it's about, do I like how I feel? Okay, so the self-defeating behavior, if I choose to binge, the rebellious behavior, I choose to, to eat this because you can't tell me what to do. Ultimately, when you finish doing that, how do I feel? And would I choose to feel this way again? Do I want to continue to beat myself up in this way? If you're talking about somebody who beats themselves up and maybe they're, if that's a pattern where they're constantly beating themselves up and denigrating them, this is also, by the way, when I'm working with binge eating disorder, I'm, I'm working with psychologists and, and therapists, you know, it's like, where did this person learn that this is okay? Is this how they were treated as, as a kid? And, and so now we're looking at, at possibly some deeper issues, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of when you stop the binging and stop the focus on dieting, you have the, you know, the cognitive ability now because you're not malnourished to work on the... Well, and I'll tell you something else that ends up happening, and it can be really scary for some people, and that's when they're in great transition. So let's say someone's going from grad school and they're launching into a career, but they have a gap year, so they don't have a year, they have a year off. Or somebody who is, it made a big, a big move, now they suddenly have all this space, when you look at how much time is spent in the binge eating process from the thought to the buying of the food and so on, and now how they have all this time on their hands and what am I going to do with it? On the one hand, it's great opportunity, but for other people, it can feel daunting on what am I going to do with my life? And it becomes an existential issue, a very important one. What is the meaning of my life? And some people, they've been so distracted in the eating process, they haven't started answering those kinds of, of questions on what gives me purpose, what's important to me. You know, that's why this work I think is so important. It, it, it clears away all the obstacles to living a meaningful life, whatever that is for that individual. Definitely. It's, it's yeah. such an amazing process. And one that I even found well after the point of finding intuitive eating in, in, in your book was this idea, like, for example, the menstrual cycle. Do you see a lot of women get come in with varied eating because of their menstrual cycle? At certain times of the month, they're going to be eating more, their body's going to require more than others. 
Oh, absolutely. I found this personally in mine. And when I was dieting, I, it was like, I felt there had to be a baseline. And now with intuitive eating, you've completely helped me see it certain times of the month where it's like, it's okay. I'm eating more this month. Like I won't steak every day and that's fine. Like that's something that, that my body's telling me. Well, I mean, it's interesting though, also the way you're describing it now with this open mindset that it, that it's okay. You're not making it wrong. You're not violating a rule. And there's actually been research to show that, yeah, basal metabolic rate does increase around that time. There is increased cravings because there's also more need for, for nourishment. And I think cultivating compassion and dignity in ourselves is probably one of the most important things we can do. Do you know? And that's why this idea of health at every size and that you are the boss of you, no one knows how you're feeling is so important. It's profoundly important, you know? And I'm not talking about a narcissistic love, but I mean, uh, compassion for yourself and just for humanity, I think is so important. And so it begins with basic respect. And it makes me sad with so many women and men that I work with, they don't respect themselves because they have, they're at war with their bodies, you know, and that interferes with relationships. It interferes with a relationship with yourself, which interferes with relationships with, with life. Oh, thank you, Evelyn, so much for spending time with us today and imparting your wisdom. I mean, just so much in this conversation that really is going to help people. And your workbook too is just a way to really take all of these concepts we talked about and, and work through them and at your own pace. So I recommend everybody check this out again. It's a really great, thank you. Really thank great you. resource for your journey. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Evelyn Triboli. Now let's go over three key takeaways from this conversation to help you recover strong. Key takeaway number one, trust your body. Diet mentality teaches you that you can't trust your body. Feel hungry? Diet culture says too bad. Ignore it using any means necessary. Intuitive eating teaches us that it's a harmful lie. You can trust your body when it says you're hungry and you can nourish it. It's really that simple, but after years of living with the diet mentality, it takes time and practice to trust your hunger cues. A common concern Evelyn faces with her patients is feeling like they get hungry too quickly after eating and that it's too soon to eat again. Evelyn suggests looking at your hunger and nourishment needs in the same judgment-free and neutral way you would look at any other bodily function because you wouldn't judge yourself for breathing or going to the bathroom. And so an analogy I will use, because it's still, what we're talking about is a, is a process that's called introceptive awareness. And that's our ability to perceive physical sensations that arise from within our body, like hunger, you know, or like having a full bladder. And so relatedly, I'll say to my patient, if they, if they say this to me, they're confused about eating. I just ate breakfast an hour ago. How can I be hungry? I said, well, I will say things like, well, maybe you just went to the bathroom and emptied your bladder <laughs> and it's an hour later and you need to be again. Do you question that? <laughs> <laughs> and they'll start laughing. That's like silly. It's like, no, I, I don't question that. And I said, well, do you feel guilty about it? No. <laughs> it might be inconvenient. It might be annoying. Those are all fair assessments, you know, but your direct experience is your direct experience. Your body will tell you what it needs. You can trust it. The hard part is letting go of the judgment that comes from years of telling yourself that certain foods or eating habits are good or bad, but there's no morality to it. You aren't doing anything wrong by feeding yourself and giving your body nourishment. So that is key takeaway number one. Trust your body. Key takeaway number two. Give yourself unconditional permission to eat. This is one of the 10 principles of intuitive eating. It's foundational to recovery, but it can feel scary and counterintuitive. Can you really allow yourself to eat? 
we lose all control? Evelyn Triboli touched on these concerns. So the theme of permission is big. And I will tell you, that scares a lot of people. They're like, oh, you know, if I, if I start eating a candy bar, you don't understand. I won't stop. Or once I have a donut, man, I'm eating the whole dozen. And when we start breaking this down is looking at what happens with chronic dieting. With chronic dieting, there's all the rules of what you can and can't eat. So it keeps food really, really exciting. So if you think you can never have a donut again and you finally have opportunity, in that moment, you don't care about hunger, fullness, or satisfaction. It's like, you're mine, and let's get it now while I can. So there's a phenomenon that happens with permission to eat. Is now when you know you have permission, it's like, well, if I eat this donut now, am I going to enjoy it? Will it be satisfying? And do I really want it? And it's the paradox of permission. If you really have the permission to experience. And what ends up happening is sometimes people say, oh, I don't want it right now. When you make food a forbidden fruit, it just makes you want it more. It fuels your disordered eating behaviors. As counterintuitive as it may feel, giving yourself permission to eat with no strings attached is the way to set yourself free. That was key takeaway number two. Give yourself unconditional permission to eat. Finally, key takeaway number three. Diets don't work. An important part of recovery is saying goodbye to the idea that you can control your food, body, life, and happiness by dieting. And this can be tough because diets really sell you on the idea that the diet isn't the problem. You are. But that's a lie. The reality is much different. Diets are harmful. They don't work. And trying to lose weight is only going to keep you trapped in the eating disorder cycle. I wish every person knew this, that warning, if you start a diet and you, if you start dieting, not only will it not work, it's going to mess you up. You know, it can increase your risk of binge eating. It can increase the risk for other eating disorders like bulimia and anorexia as well. And there's even studies, a study on 17,000 kids, kids who dieted versus those that didn't. And the kids that dieting had a much higher risk of binge eating. And we think about it from a survival mechanism. It makes sense. As far as your cells are concerned, you're trying to kill them, you know, and they're going to do everything they can to make you eat. It's almost like when you stop breathing. If you stop breathing for a long period of time and you finally get to breathe and come up for air, it's not a polite inhale. It's a, a big old gasp. And it's like you're gasping for food. Your little salad, man, they are gasping for food. Just like breathing, feeding your body is a natural biological need. Pursuing diets, restriction, and any type of intentional weight loss will fuel your eating disorder. Unsubscribe from the lies that diet culture has told you because diets don't work. So these are our three key takeaways from this conversation with Evelyn Triboli. Well, my warrior friend, thank you for having the discipline to listen in. If you found this episode helpful and know somebody in recovery who could benefit from its inspiring message, please share this show with them. It would mean the world to us at Recovery Warriors if we can get our cause out to more people struggling with an eating disorder. So if what you heard today was helpful, share the show with another warrior or anyone on your treatment team. You can do this directly from your podcast player or send them over to recoverywarriors.com. We have a goldmine of free resources there for all stages of recovery. And until the next episode, may compassion like the path you are on and courage keep you on it. You totally got this warrior. Mm-hmm.